Did you know that you can read dozens of books on the subject of significant living? You can browse a Christian website called significantliving.org. You can thumb through a magazine called Significant Living. You can watch episodes of a TV series called Significant Living online. And you can talk to any number of people about what they consider to be the best way to live out your life in a significant way. Now, significance is often defined as having importance or being noteworthy, to live a life with lasting importance. While we may not verbalize it, I think most of us want to live a life that is characterized that way, that, that we have lasting importance. But, but how many of us really do from God's perspective? You say, well, what's the big deal about significance anyway? Uh, where does such a desire originate? Well, I, I think God wired us that way from the very beginning. I think this whole drive to be significant in this world comes from God himself, but this is where we get it mixed up. We begin to look to the world for our perspective of significance instead of God. I, and I think part of the struggle comes when we try to blend our American perspective with our spiritual perspective. Turn on the news, and what do you see? You get updates on sports figures, Hollywood icons, and political leaders. As a result, we often conclude that such folks are the significant personalities of our culture. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I really enjoy sports. I admire quality acting. I have a deep regard for many who have served in elected office. But we should never conclude that significance in life ends in those areas or categories. But even those whose accomplishments are hailed as significant by our world and who truly have some measure of significance as it applies to other people in this world, they fade from view in a few years. How many gold medalists can you name from the Olympics in years past? How many gold medalists can you name from the most recent Olympics? We would consider that to be something really significant, and yet it just fades so quickly. How many of you would recognize the name Joe Kittinger? Anybody recognize that name? He still holds two world records that I doubt may not be broken for any uh, time to come, at least soon. On August the 16th, 1960, in an effort to provide research data for the then-fledgling U.S. space program, Air Force Captain Joseph Kittinger rode a helium balloon uh, all the way to uh, 102,600 feet above the earth. Now, that is just right at the edge of, of outer space. Then wearing a, a thin pressurized suit and breathing supplemental oxygen from a pack on his back, he leaned over the cramped confines of his little gondola and leaped. Can you imagine? 102,600 feet above the surface of the, of the earth. Within seconds, his body had accelerated to 714 miles per hour in the thin air. The temperature was 110 degrees below zero. After free-falling for more than four and a half minutes, he was finally slowed a bit by the friction of the air as he was coming back into the atmosphere. And at 14,000 feet, his parachute deployed, and he coasted gently down to the New Mexico floor. Kittinger's feet proved to NASA scientists 
that astronauts could survive in the harshness of space with just a pressure suit and that somehow you could get from there to the earth by a parachute. To this day, no one has ever parachuted from such an extraordinary height, and he remains the only man to break the sound barrier without an airplane. Can you imagine that? And yet, most of us here have no idea who the man was, or is, and, and what he accomplished in the past. Now, why are we so enamored with that kind of significance? I, I think that's why our American view of significant life just isn't the best perspective because something seems important at the moment and then after just a short period of time it just sort of fades from view. God has a different perspective on significance. And the question we need to ask today is how does God define a significant life? Because really by, by our American perspective most of us in this room will never live a significant life. But everybody in this room, I believe, can live a significant life as God defines it. How does God define it? Oh, well, you might be surprised. I like how author John Ortberg describes it in a little bit different words. Quote, God made you to flourish, to receive life from outside yourself, creating vitality within yourself and producing blessings beyond yourself. Flourishing is God's gift and plan, and when you flourish, you are in harmony with God, with other people, with creation, and with yourself. Flourishing is not measured by outward signs such as income or possession or attractiveness. It means becoming the person He had in mind for you. Flourishing means moving toward God's best version of you. Now that is a significant life, moving toward God's best version of who he created you to be. Now let me suggest some timeless biblical principles and truths that can help us move in that kind of a direction this morning, all right? These are nothing new, all right? There's nothing tremendously exciting about what, what I'm going to give you today because you already know them. It's just the fact that we oftentimes don't do them because we're stuck on some other vision of significance. All right, here's the first one. Availability is more important than ability. Availability is more important than ability. Have you ever noticed how in, in, in the study of Scripture, God overlooked the famous and the powerful to use those who in the eyes of the world were rather insignificant? But because they were available and willing, they became great partners in the plan of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the story of a demon-possessed man that lived in the caves of the region called the Decapolis. And, and Jesus and the disciples once made a trip across the Sea of Galilee into this area that was dominated by ten Roman cities. And when they, when they came to the other shore, this demon-possessed man met them as he came out of the caves, screaming and, and hollering. He'd been cutting himself. Even chains could not bind this man. The overpowering force of evil had robbed him of his friends, of his family, his home, his health, his mental clarity. The community had tried to, claim him, uh, to, to chain him, but they, they could not. He could not be contained in any form or fashion. And this is the man that the community had tried to keep out of their midst because of his devastating nature. And when he met Jesus, 
After a long ordeal, Jesus cast the demons out of him into a herd of swine who, like lemmings, headed to the sea, plunged over the cliff, and, and all died. And when the people of the region came out to see what all the chaos and the commotion had been about as the herders went into town to tell the story, they found this man sitting there in his right mind, rational and reasonable. And it, and it scared them to death. Here was a man who was the antithesis of peace. No one could control him or even stand to be around him. But here he was, a model of peace and control. Only Jesus could do that. And it's really interesting that when the people came out, they couldn't see past their fear at that moment. If they had stopped to think about the fact that here was a man who took the most disturbing person ever and turned him into someone significant. Imagine what he could do in their lives, but, but they couldn't get past the fear and what had happened, and they said to Jesus, we want you to leave. And of course, since Jesus never forces himself on anybody, he and the disciples got back in their boat, and they sailed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But the end of the story is significant. Let, let me read to you from Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 18 and following, and, and you can follow along. The, the, Jesus is getting ready to leave now. And it says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him. But he said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Now, Fast forward to Mark chapter 8. Jesus returns to the Decapolis for the second time and is met this time by huge crowds. Funny, isn't it? The first time he was there, no one came out to meet him except for this demon-possessed man. The community people that asked him to leave, they were scared to death of who this Jesus was. But when he returns, there are hundreds, even thousands, who gather to hear him preach and teach. What made the difference? I'll tell you what I think. I think it was this man who'd been transformed by Jesus, who was determined that only through Jesus would his life have any significance. And when Jesus said, no, you can't go with me, but I want you to go and tell everybody else what God has done for you, he went and told everyone else. And because of what he had been and what God was able to do in his life and transform him, the next time Jesus came, thousands came to meet him. By the way, what was this guy's name? Anybody know? If you give me an answer, you're wrong because the Bible doesn't give us a name. We know what the name of the demons were, but we know what this man's name was. Isn't it interesting? An unnamed former demon-possessed man brings thousands to hear Jesus speak. He had learned what I think we sometimes forget. John wrote it in his little letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you want significance, it has to come through a relationship with God, remembering that he is greater than any force or power that is at work in our lives. And that when you make yourself available to him, God will use you. I don't know what abilities you have or lack of abilities you may think you have, but I can tell you that doesn't matter because God's the power anyway. All he wants is somebody who is available. And when you're available to him, 
you have significance. Xiao Jing is uh, one of the young ladies uh, in our congregation who has come from her home region. And I just want you to see this brief video about her testimony <clears throat> and her life, and then I'll tell you what she's up to right now. My name is Xiao Jing Guo. I'm from Taiwan. And my family are all in Taiwan. I love them a lot. And um, <clears throat> my family are really supportive. In a way, they sent me here to study. And um, although they are not believers yet, but um, a friend of mine told me that I am the first seed in my family, a Christian, um, that got put in my family. And that gave me a lot of hope, actually, because um, a seed should grow. So that means God already had planned for my family, and that seed can grow. And then eventually, and I pray that really, um, the rest of my family members can become part of this big family. When I first came to Bloomington, um, I wasn't really a believer yet, but I know somehow I needed to go to church. So I actually Google, and then Google, and I found Elon's IFM um, website, and I found that there's a van going to campus to pick up people to church. So that's how I started to um, know Elon and come to this church. And, um, and throughout the activities here, the people here, I eventually um, make a decision to follow Christ. And I was baptized here. Elon baptized me at that time. I went on a mission trip to Uganda about two years ago. And there, I, that really opened my eye and my whole world and to see how people in a different world um, live their life. And that's how, I think in a way, my journey started to um, really wanted to go to a field and then to see people's life and then to see how God is working in every culture, in every people group's life. And uh, just by seeing that, I think we can see God there too. So a lot of time we want to really help people to know God, to hear the gospel. So we do a lot of talking, but at, at the same time we can listen to them and then I feel it's like, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like um, when Jesus met the woman at the well, he didn't start with, you know, this gospel, this God, but he started with, you know, really understand the woman's life by listening to women's, you know, like he has, she has things that's broken in her life. And then, so Jesus was listening to her and then help her to understand herself. So I feel this is what I wanted to do to, to really listen to people because we all want people to listen to our story. So I want to go there and listen to their story about their life. And then um, by listening to them, I can better understand them. And then maybe they will help us to know how we can really serve them. I don't know if you've ever seen Xiao Jing around here at church, and you probably wouldn't think much 
because she's a rather quiet young lady if you saw her, but did you catch everything that went through there? She is the first in her family to believe. She came from Taiwan to Bloomington to go to school and, and found out that there was a van that picked up and brought to church and she came to church and, and she came to an understanding of Jesus Christ as her savior and she was baptized right here and then went on a mission trip to Uganda. Do you know where she is right now? She is spending three months in Romania on a mission trip, helping, listening to people there. The gypsies of Romania who, who have been outcasts within their own culture. Is God something or what? That he brings a, a young Taiwanese woman to America, to our church, and now she's in Romania. I'm so confused. Uh, how, do, how do you get all these pieces together? Because I loved what she said, my, my family is not Christian yet. I, I'm telling you, there is a life of significance because she has made herself available to God to be used by him. Whether it's Uganda or Romania or back in Taiwan, I just know this, she's gonna make a quiet difference wherever she goes because God is working through her. Now that's significance. If you want significance, then it starts with availability more than ability. You see, because God's the ability anyway. He just needs partners through whom to work. Here's the second principle. Sharing well is more important than faring well. I've got a question for you. In what areas does the Bible teach us to excel? You'd say, okay, well, the Bible teaches us to excel in love, forgiveness, Christ-like behavior. Let me, let me read a passage to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is what we read. Paul says, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Mediocrity and spirituality, aren't, they're not compatible. God calls us to a spirit of excellence. But when was the last time you thought about excellence in the area of giving as being spiritually significant? I often read about people who are wonderfully philanthropic, and I marvel at their kindness. Millions of dollars given to universities or hospitals or civic organizations and more. And such gifts are wonderful indeed. But I often... From, from my perspective, I often find myself wondering what would happen in this world if some of that had been shared with the kingdom. So what if a multi-million dollar gift builds a dormitory on some campus and they name it after you? How long will that dorm last? And how long will anybody really know that's your name on it? Suppose your gift buys the newest piece of medical equipment at a regional hospital. How long before that new piece of equipment will be antiquated and no longer usable because of the advancement of technology? Do you suppose in heaven that anyone will approach you and say, hey, thanks for the cool dorm room, I enjoyed that for a semester. Or my surgery went well, thanks to you. Now please don't misunderstand. I think gifts to our universities and hospitals and, and civic organizations are wonderful things to do, but not at the exclusion of the kingdom, because it is the kingdom that provides ultimate significance. 
Every time I hear Ajay Lal preach, like he stood here and preached, and you know what most of the people said? I could have listened to him for two hours. I could have too. Nobody ever says that about my sermons, but I could have listened to... <laughs> I could have listened to Ajay preach for two hours as he shared these stories and, and the events, and, and it took me back to my, my time in India with him and with that ministry, and I'm remembering men who, some of whom are no longer with us today, who've already gone home to be with the Lord because of the persecution there, and I, and I think of the significance of what his ministry is doing. I'm reminded of the incredible need of a huge segment of our world to find hope in Jesus Christ. Do you know that we Americans spend as much annually on chewing gum as we do on missions? That our mission support annually is equivalent to what our nation spends on a 52-day supply of pet food? That sounds so insignificant, doesn't it? Consider this for a moment. It would take about $65 billion to eliminate the world's poverty. Do you know that? If, if there was a collection of $65 billion, it could just about eliminate world poverty. It is estimated that if every member of God's church around the world tithed for one year, the kingdom of God could eliminate world poverty and have $17 billion left over, all the while maintaining the normal flow of the life of the church and its activities at its current levels. You would that be significant? You bet it would be significant in, in one year to eliminate world hunger. And by eliminating their physical hunger, if they found the bread of life for eternity, that would make it truly significant. I think in heaven, We'll hear these questions or these comments if somebody comes up to us. I think this is what we'll hear, if anything. Thank you. Thank you for telling me about Jesus. That's what we'll hear when we get to heaven. But that will never happen if we are more concerned about faring well than sharing well. Once again, the Lord's perspective is so different. Mark records this story. I know you know this story, but hear it again. In Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, it says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, I know you've heard that story lots of times, to the point where it might even seem trite to you, but it has never been trite in the eyes of God. And of all of the offerings that have been made in the New Testament, Jesus made sure her story was one that the kingdom would tell over and over and over until the Lord would return. Why? Because it's not about the amount, it's about the heart behind it. Jesus called her gift significant. You say, well, I won't. Two small copper coins. I've got a, a, a widow's mite in my office. It's just a really, it's smaller than a penny. You think, how? A banker estimated that her, if her monetary gift had been placed in a bank drawing 4% interest at that time, today, compounded semi-annually, today that account would be now worth $4.8 billion. That's 48 followed by 20 zeros. <laughs> 
If a financial institution can multiply the value of those two, two seemingly insignificant coins, just think what God can do with our sacrificial gifts. You see, she was more concerned about sharing well than faring well, and she trusted God to take care of her. By the way, what was her name? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Another nameless individual whose life was far more significant than we can imagine. Our money is the most personal thing that we have. You know, in the Old Testament, it wasn't so much about the money, it was about what you had. Uh, wealth was measured in flocks and herds and sometimes clothes and that kind of thing. So when God said, bring an offering into to worship, when, when you brought a, a, a lamb uh, to, to be sacrificed, it was to be the best of the flock. It was to be unblemished. I, I'm, I'm here to remind you that keeping and hanging on to what we have won't make us significant, but it will oftentimes make us more self-centered than it will be selfless. People are more important than things, so use things to bless people. Don't use people to gain things. One's significant, the other isn't. God has called us to share what we have. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have things, okay? I, I, like you, I enjoy nice things and good things and, and um, uh, good food, and, and those, but, but it's, it's all an issue of balance, and the significance is to be found in sharing well more than faring well. People sometimes uh, ask me, well, why do we have a gratitude offering every time at this year? Um, th there's always needs in the church, right? That's why we have a gratitude offering. Well, um, we, we do have needs. It's not a wish list, it's a needs list. Um, part of our expression of faithfulness to God, I believe, is meeting the benevolent needs of this community. And so anytime we have a gratitude offering, we always take 10% of it. We always tithe that offering to benevolence. Now that just adds into what we, this, the thousands of dollars that we build into the budget every year for benevolence, helping people out in the community who, who don't have what they need and, and, and uh, struggle to get by. Um, and so that, that is one thing. Uh, in addition to uh, that, uh, there are some needs. I'll just be honest, there's some needs around here. We, I don't know if you've walked through the halls downstairs where our kids are, but the, the carpeting in the hallway is, is pretty, pretty bad, actually. Uh, the carpeting in the fellowship hall, it's original to this building. This building, that building on that end is about, uh, you know, 18, 19 years old now. We're, I mean, things are beginning to wear out. We got a projector down there that's about to wear out. Um, our church vans have topped 100,000 miles on it now. Uh, we'll keep using all these things until they are completely worn out. So, but, but there are needs. Now you say, well, how important is a church van? Do you remember Xiaoxing? She found out a church van picked up people on campus, and that's how she got here, and that's how she heard about Jesus Christ, and that's how she was baptized into Christ, and that's how she went to Romania to serve Jesus Christ. See, all these things are just tools that make a difference. So those are the kinds of things that come along with this gratitude offering. But if that's really the heartbeat behind a gratitude offering, then we wouldn't call it that. We'd call it a repair and replace donation, or we'd call it a quick fix collection, or we'd call it an over and above offering. You see, it's not about that. The reason it's a gratitude offering is because our gratitude is an expression of our worship before God, and what better season of the year for us to say that what I possess is nothing compared to the significance that God gives me. And so whether if we never had another need in the life of the church, we'd still have a gratitude offering, if, even if we just gave it all away. Why? Because you and I need to express our gratitude 
in giving up those things that are most important to us because that's when we realize that our significance is not in the things that we hold or have. Our significance is in the one who holds us and has us. Here's the last thing. Attitude is more important than aptitude. King Saul was an apt and capable leader. His stature and humility at the beginning of his monarchy were, were legendary. He could have been the most, do you realize that, that King Saul could have been the most significant king of Israel's history, but something went terribly wrong. He and the army uh, were encamped on one hillside, and across the, the valley on the other hillside was the Philistine army. And every day for 40 days, the giant Goliath came down into the valley and taunted the armies of Israel. Now, you know the story. David finally shows up, and here's this shepherd you know, that comes in from the fields. He's a strapping young man, probably in his late teens, early 20s, and he says, I'll take him on. And he goes down the valley, not by his own power, but by the power of God, and he slays him with his sling and then takes the giant's sword and cuts off Goliath's head, and it is so emboldens the troops of the Israelites that they come crashing down off of that hillside, and the Philistines begin to flee, and it is a national rout as the army of Israel takes on the army of the Philistines, and they plunder their camp, and, and they're on their way back from this. And, and what happens after a great victory? There's always a what? Party. Always a celebration, always a big party. So here they come. They got their plunder, and they're coming in. They're parading through all the towns and the villages, and, and, and there's just this marvelous attitude that's going on. And, and I want to read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 18. It says, And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistines, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now notice the next verse. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. I'm here to tell you, Saul should have been leading the parade for David. He had just saved the king's reputation. He had just redeemed the entire nation from slavery to the Philistines. Saul should have been the loudest voice in the chorus, lifting up the praise of David. We couldn't have done this without God working through David. But he wasn't. You see, Saul was looking for significance in the eyes of his subject rather than in the sight of the Lord. And it was his undoing. God eventually tore the kingdom from his grasp and it all started with a misunderstood, misplaced concept of significance. Contrast that to the words of John the Baptist who after he had baptized Jesus, he said, he must become greater and I must become less. Will you please tell me who, whether Saul or John the Baptist, was of greater significance in the kingdom and in history. John Allerton, John Crackstone, Thomas English, Dorothy Bradford, Sarah Eaton, Alice Ragsdale. Recognize any of those names? Of the 102 pilgrims who journeyed to the New World, only 53 survived the year to celebrate the first harvest in Plymouth Colony. Out of that group, only four 
were women who survived. Those names that I mentioned are the names of the dead. Nearly 50 graves dotted the hillside as a reminder of the tragic losses that had been experienced in this group of, of pilgrims who came on a significant journey to find what they could not find anywhere else, the privilege of being able to worship God as they saw fit. You know, with, with almost half of their numbers gone, it's, it's, it's almost surprising that when the Mayflower left the next spring, that they all didn't just pack up and say, this was a bad idea, we're going home to England. But not one of them went home with the Mayflower. And I'm here to tell you that none of those people who died, died in vain. Because what they did was that they established a, a, a foothold in this new world based on the significance of the freedom of worship and that they would bring their lives before God and they would be used of Him even if it cost them everything like those who were buried on Coles Hill there at Plymouth. They came to their first harvest and some said this needs to be a day of fasting and some said, oh no, this needs to be a day of joy. After all, we have much to celebrate. God has blessed, and we have found our liberty. You see, in the Lord, they found their significance, and we are indebted to them today for what they helped start nearly 400 years ago. You are divinely designed this morning. In your Creator and in Him alone, you will find lasting significance so are you flourishing? Are you moving toward God's best version of you? Because if you try to be significant as the world sees it, you'll be miserable. But if you're available to God, if you're more concerned about sharing well than faring well, and if your gratitude and attitude is more important than your aptitude, then God will give you a significant life, divinely designed and significant. Do you know him as your savior this morning? While we stand and while we sing, you come if you don't.